Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. I start today's program with a quote from Jean Valjean. We are all fools most of our lives. It is unavoidable. And that is from Les Miserables by Victor Hugo and by the notorious Ann Coulter. Liberals need to be threatened with death or they will turn out to be absolute traitors. It might seem an impertinent cliche to regurgitate Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, but the USA has just withstood and resisted a Republican Confederacy that deceitfully manipulated the electoral process to constrict American democracy through the ballot box. Lincoln spoke at Gettysburg on November 19, 1863, with nearly psychic clarity of our own contemporary anxieties between democracy and latent fascism, when he said that our revolutionary ancestors, quote, brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all human beings are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any other nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, Lincoln said, that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. That great civil war Lincoln spoke of has never ended, nor probably ever will, as long as humans are themselves the contradictory beings they have been since dropping out of trees in Africa, of all places, whose black descendants were forcibly brought to this continent as chained slaves, but were freed some three centuries later, by primarily white suffragists and soldiers, who primarily despised slavery, but contradictorily, most of whom were also racists and racial separatists. It is virtually axiomatic to refer back to Lincoln, who presided over a house divided and was determined to solder the severed parts back to union. There probably has not been a more necessary moment since the age of revolution, two and a half centuries ago, known also as the Enlightenment, to be aware exactly of our rights and obligations as free and independent citizens of a democracy, but also as world citizens, a global concept of humanity as a mutually cooperative species that the resurgence of ultra-nationalist neo-fascism globally does not recognize and is determined to stifle and abolish along with individual and communal human rights. Americans not only have basic human rights and liberties to protect from tyranny and despotism, we are personally and collectively obligated to resist their current resurgence nationally and globally. The underlying themes of autocracy and aristocracy, which were temporarily purged with the revolution and constitution, 
and no less by the Civil War, have never quite evaporated from the American psyche, but have not been so wholly manifested until the advent of Donald Trump. The Constitution has had many enemies, foreign and domestic, but none have been so thoroughly threatening to the basis of democracy as Trump's spurious dissemblance of truth, honesty, and integrity. The dreadful omnipresence of Trump these past wretched years, since his abominable ascent to the presidency and fraudulent and violent claim he was elected to a second term, his fomenting of a desperate insurrection to override his electoral defeat by instigating a deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol, have precipitated a whirlwind of regenerated prejudices and threats of overturning democracy from which there seems to be no disembarkation soon. And with the sudden unexpected rise of Trump half a dozen years ago, the complex and fragile fabric of human rights in the United States have been relentlessly jackhammered and threatened with collapse from nearly unchecked corruption, malice, and racism. The nation seems reflected in an opaque hall of macabre and distorted mirrors and nearly paralyzed by intolerant political schisms poised to eradicate the bedrock of constitutional protections that are supposed to guard and guarantee democracy. The ancient and atrocious issue of white male supremacy and dominance, the persecution of other races and religions not puritanically white Christian, are again a major theme in American politics since the advent of Trump. And the momentary check on these abominable aspirations by this month's midterm election might very well cause them to be more volatile and violent. The vote averted and denied an attempted coup rather than legitimize it. The radical right and violent militias and their inquisitionary cohorts are still extant, however. Yet, it is with great glee to realize that the political pirates were unable to scuttle the USA this past election. Their own plank drowned them. The world has never had a good definition of the word liberty, Lincoln said on April 18, 1864, a year before he was assassinated, and the American people just now are much in want of one. Lincoln also reinstituted Thanksgiving for the last Thursday of November after its decline from George Washington's initiation of it. He said at Gettysburg the immortal words that will go down to the last generation, which were also his words, that liberty and unity of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth, despite all efforts to the contrary. And now, by Michelle Goldberg. The Trump show is back. Let's not tune in. 
Donald Trump is a petulant narcissist, so his feuds with governors Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin are surely sincere. But they also show that Trump hasn't lost his feral instinct for media attention. In recent months, the former president has become increasingly boring, and after sabotaging Republican hopes for a red wave, his power is at a low ebb. By stoking a Republican Party civil war and announcing his run for president, he can perhaps rekindle interest in a new season of the Trump show. Trump has very little else to keep people watching. On Tuesday, he gave an extraordinarily tedious and droning address announcing his new presidential campaign. This is one of the most low-energy, uninspiring speeches I've ever heard from Trump, tweeted Sarah Matthews, his former deputy White House press secretary. Even the crowd seems bored. CNN cut away 20 minutes in. Fox News lasted about 40 minutes, though it returned for the peroration, such as it was. Still, as I listened to Trump speak about cesspools of blood and sadistic knife-wielding gangsters, it was hard not to feel a sickening sense of deja vu. Somehow, seven long years after he descended his golden escalator, we are back to a place where most conservative elites are again united against him, waiting for a Florida Republican to take him out, even as his fanatical base remains committed. Once again, we have seen Trump bestowing insulting nicknames on his presumptive Republican competitors. He has clearly lost a step. Ron D. Sanctimonious, quote-unquote, is a lot less catchy than Lion Ted. But no one should assume he's finished. Trump has told others he wants to recreate the underdog vibe of the 2016 campaign, reported the Washington Post. It is now up to the rest of us to decide if we are going to help him. In 2015 and 2016, much of the media abetted Trump's rise, amplifying his every provocation because it was fun and profitable to rubberneck as he bulldozed through the Republican Party. All that free media helped catapult Trump to victory. Now he's forcing us into a do-over. I understand that we cannot avoid writing or talking about a former president who is now a leading presidential contender. I am, after all, writing a column about him. But we can all avoid letting him set the terms of the debate. The newsworthy thing about his announcement speech was not anything he said. Rather, it's that, as the New York Times' Maggie Haberman pointed out on The Daily, he's running in part to evade potential criminal prosecution, which could arise from either his attempted coup or the classified government documents he appears to have stolen. It is also worth noting that, once again, he's in bed with authoritarian foreign powers. Just this week, we learned that Trump signed a deal with a Saudi real estate giant to have the Trump brand 
be a part of a $1.6 billion project in Oman. Information keeps dribbling out about the emoluments he collected as president. The House Oversight Committee recently revealed that officials from six countries, including China and Saudi Arabia, spent more than $750,000 at his Washington hotel during his administration, sometimes renting rooms for more than $10,000 a night. Many have used the pro-wrestling term kayfabe, which I hope I am pronouncing correctly, which refers to the illusion that wrestling's staged melodramas are real to explain both Trump's manipulation of reality and his fans' willing suspension of disbelief. It is an apt way of understanding his recent attempts to seize the spotlight. But the key through line of the Trump story is oligarchic corruption enabled by legal impunity, not impersonal feuds. I certainly understand the let them fight giddiness among some Democrats eager for a Trump DeSantis smackdown. At times I even share it. But Trump has benefited whenever we have let him turn politics into pro wrestling. In the series finale of The Good Fight, the only TV show to capture the berserk surrealism of Trump-era politics, a character based on the flamboyant troll Milo Yiannopoulos turns up at the show's Democratic law firm peddling a garbage smear against DeSantis. The firm's lawyers must decide whether they want to be part of a Roger Stone orchestrated dirty trick to bring down the Florida governor, paving the way for a Trump restoration. They consider it reasoning that Trump would be easier to beat in a general election, but ultimately decide not to follow through. It's the right decision in the show's not-so-fictional world, and it would be in real life. DeSantis a more effective politician than Trump, might do more damage to liberal priorities than Trump did. But Trump will do more damage to democracy itself. On Tuesday, he uttered one true line. America is, quote, all very fragile to start out with, unquote, Trump said. It can only take so much. The Trump Show is back. Let's not tune in by Michelle Goldberg, which she wrote for the New York Times. And another bon mot from the New York Times. What happens when a cascade of crises collide? And it's by Thomas Homer Dixon and Johann Rockstrom. Dr. Dixon is the executive director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in British Columbia. And Dr. Rockstrom is a director of the Potsdam Institute for Clinical Impact Research and professor in Earth System Science at the University of Potsdam. It seems as if the world is encountering a perfect storm of simultaneous crises. 
The coronavirus pandemic is approaching the end of its third year. The war in Ukraine is threatening to go nuclear. Extreme climate events are afflicting North America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Inflation is reaching rates unseen in decades, and authoritarianism is on the march around the world. But the storm metaphor implies that this simultaneity is an unfortunate and temporary coincidence, that it's humanity's bad luck that everything seems to be going haywire all at once. In reality, the likelihood that the current mess is a coincidence is vanishingly small. We are almost certainly confronting something far more persistent and dangerous. We can see the crisis of the moment, but we are substantially blind to the hidden processes by which those crises worsen one another and to the true dangers that may be enveloping us all. Today's mess is better understood as a global polycrisis, a term the historian Adam Tooze at Columbia has recently popularized. The term implies that humanity is dealing with a complex knot of seemingly distinct but actually deeply entangled crises. Precisely because these crises are so entangled, they are causing worldwide damage much greater than the sum of their individual harms. In the last 10 years, things have gone fundamentally awry. Rates of global hunger, numbers of migrants forced to move within countries and across borders, levels of political authoritarianism, violations of human rights, and the occurrence of violent demonstrations and ongoing conflict. These measures of harm are all up, and in some cases by a lot. At the same time, the average human life expectancy dropped to 70.96 years in 2021 from an estimated 72.6 years in 2019, the first decline since the United Nations began tabulating such data in 1950. Taken in isolation, natural and social stresses that can lead to a global crisis are often identified as systemic risks. They include climate heating, zoonotic disease outbreaks, which is disease transmitted from animals to humans, biodiversity decline, worsening economic inequality, financial system instability, ideological extremism, cyber attacks, mounting social and political unrest, and geopolitical imbalances. Most of these systemic risks have become more disruptive and hazardous, and in most cases, they are now worsening faster. In other words, these risks are both amplifying in severity and accelerating in rate. For instance, as the havoc wrought by COVID-19 shows, outbreaks of zoonotic viral disease are becoming more severe. They are also occurring more frequently. Similarly, climate heating has both amplified and accelerated. We are seeing also a rapid rise in the severity and frequency of extreme events like droughts, floods, 
storms and heat waves affecting billions of people and in turn multiplying the population displacement, social instability, and conflict, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Two factors are powerfully driving risk amplification and acceleration. First, the magnitude of humanity's resource consumption and pollution output is weakening the resilience of natural systems, worsening the risks of climate heating, biodiversity decline, and zoonotic viral outbreaks. Second, vastly greater connectivity among our economic and social systems has sharply raised the volume and velocity of long-distance flows of materials, energy, and information, aggravating such risks as financial systems instability, pandemics, economic inequality, and ideological extremism. The simultaneity of crises we are experiencing hints that something else is also happening. Risk synchronization. Complex and largely unrecognized casual links among the world's economic, social, and ecological systems may be causing many risks to go critical at nearly the same time. If so, the apparent simultaneity isn't just a temporary coincidence. It is likely to persist and could ultimately overwhelm the capacity of society to adapt and push some places into outright collapse, as we may be witnessing right now in Haiti. But we don't really know because generally experts at evaluating risk have deeply specialized and siloed knowledge in economics, for example, or epidemiology. This knowledge rarely translates into detailed understandings of other systemic risks at play and how they might affect one another in turn. So, for example, while specialists in climate change's economic impacts know something about how climate heating aggravates economic inequality within and between societies, they know very little about how it impacts ideological extremism, and they give virtually no attention to the possibility that causation might operate in the reverse direction also, that inequality and extremism might worsen climate eating. Yet, it is likely all these processes are now operating. Climate heating is harming people's health and causing weather disasters, affecting infrastructure and food production all over the planet. In poorer countries, these changes are constraining economic growth and widening existing economic inequalities. Lower growth and bigger inequalities, wherever they happen, intensify ideological extremism and that extremism is likely making it harder to build national and international consensus around cutting greenhouse gas emissions, allowing the heating problem to steadily worsen. These sorts of vicious cycles are what complexity scientists call self-reinforcing positive feedbacks. We tend to see bits and pieces of a causal loop but not the whole thing.
For that reason, we urgently need to identify and monitor these feedbacks and ferret out those still unrecognized to establish whether they are synchronizing the world's systemic risks. Businesses do similar kinds of risk analysis by diagramming causal loops in the dynamic systems affecting them. In this case, the system is the planet itself. It goes back to the ecologist Barry Commoner's first rule of ecology. Everything is connected to everything else. But with a crucial amendment, some kinds of connections matter a lot more than others. We propose a worldwide scientific collaboration to identify the causal mechanisms operating among these risks. This collaboration would consist of a global consortium of nationally funded institutes. It would be dedicated first to studying mechanisms that are amplifying, accelerating, and synchronizing global systemic risks, and second, to determine practical ways humanity might intervene. It would also look for ways these feedbacks might be harnessed to tip key economic, social, and ecological systems toward better outcomes. This consortium would act as the international scientific complement to the Futures Lab proposed by the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, which is intended to integrate humanity's, quote, work around forecasting megatrends and risks, unquote and it would report regularly to both the participating governments and the global public with the explicit aim of galvanizing action to address the poly crisis. It is vitally important to get this kind of initiative underway. Business as usual, Mr. Guterres has warned, could result in breakdown of the global order into a world of perpetual crisis and Winner takes all. And that was What Happens When a Cascade of Crises Collide by Thomas Horner Dixon and Johann Rockström. And it was written for the New York Times. And the only question I have is, Greta Thunberg, where are you? This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is this program's engineer. My friend, neighbor, and fellow left-handed cohort, also named Michael, and I received our COVID booster shots a couple of days ago. The world will be a much less planetary sick ward if everybody re received the essential medications to ultimately end this festering plague that is killing so many human earthlings.